They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. And Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. So let's we we gotta dive in real fast here for the next I guess probably two weeks two three weeks the banter with the what did we name this with just banter right just banter bantering with the Magellan something like that the banter section uh, Elliot had this idea Rotten Tomatoes is currently doing a tournament for the best directors to premiere since 1998. So their first movie had to be after 1998. And it's currently in round three. So Elliot and I thought it would be fun if we, and you could join along at home if you want to go to the website and look and maybe do some voting if you're a bit of a movie buff and you've seen some of these directors' movies and stuff. Or if you haven't and you just want to fudge the numbers a bit. But we thought it would be fun if we'd go through and give our take on on the matchups. So, Elliot, you've got it. You've got it up. Look, you know, let's run down the list. What what are we looking at here? All right. So first, we got Denis Villeneuve versus Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu. Denis is known for Prisoners, Arrival, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and Dune. Although you might also know him from Sicario, Incendies, and Polytechnique. And then in Yuratu, we got 21 Grams, Babel, Birdman, and The Revenant. Really not, um, shoot, what's it called? Amoris Perez? Nope. I mean, that's, that's pretty easy for me. I, I like Birdman all right, and I like The Revenant all right, but Denis is, he's just on another level. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that one. I I don't think I like Denis as much as you, but I think both Birdman and The Revenant have a lot of kind of pretentious stuff that brings them down for me. And then Amores Perez, is, or Perot, I'm butchering the Spanish pronunciation of those words, but whatever. Um, that movie's okay. And then I haven't seen, I haven't seen the other ones that a lot of people... The, Babel is supposed to be really good, but I haven't seen it. All right, what's the next one? What's the next? One? Uh, well, just uh, just in case you wanted to know, currently Denis is running away with it with seventy three percent of the vote. Yikes! Uh, next is Jason Reitman versus Bong Joon Ho. Jason Reitman is known for Thank You for Smoking, Juno, Up in the Air, Young Adult, and Ghostbusters Afterlife. Bong Joon Ho, we got Memories of Murder. The Host, Mother, and Parasite, although they left off um, Snowpiercer, which is what I would classify a pretty glaring omission because I like Snowpiercer a lot. I, I've only seen Thank You for Smoking from Jason Reitman. Uh, I, I think it's a really good movie, but I think that 
I've seen more from Bong Joon-ho, and I think that Bong Joon-ho has made better movies than Thank You for Smoking. <laughs> but yeah, I would I would go with uh, Mr. Joon-ho. Yeah, I'm in the same camp. I've seen Up in the Air and Juno, and Up in the Air is really good. I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed Thank You for Smoking, too. But Bong Joon-ho, I mean, Parasite's great. I love Memories of Murder, and I have seen The Host, and The Host is pretty good, too. It's a pretty good monster sort of flick. So I'm going Bong Joon-ho as well. Elliot? Uh, yeah, he's got 71% of the vote, so it looks like a pretty safe bet for him. Next, we've got one that I'm sure Nathan is going to really struggle with. we got Damien Chazelle versus Sofia Coppola. Damien Chazelle, mm-hmm. uh, he's listed Whiplash, La La Land, First Man, and Babylon. Sofia Coppola, it's The Virgin, Suicides, Lost in Translation, The Bling Ring, and The Beguiled. I think I'm going to have to recuse myself from this one because I've only seen another round from, uh, or what is it called? Not another round. Oh, On the Rocks. On the Rocks, yeah. I knew it was something, some kind of alcohol-related thing. I've, that's the only Sofia Coppola movie I've seen. I actually am planning on watching Lost in Translation today because it was added to Netflix, but... I remember so very little about On the Rocks. Um, Damien Chazelle is a director who is very much succumbing to the curve. That's a that's a scientific fact. But yeah, Nathan, you can you can tell us what you think. Uh, I'd have to go Damien Chazelle, although it's kind of unfair because he has fewer movies. Although that not that much fewer, and I do like Sofia Coppola quite a bit. I like Lost in Translation. The Virgin Suicides is good. Um, I don't love On the Rocks or The Beguiled, I think is the other one that I've seen of hers. But she also did uh, Marie Antoinette with Kirsten Dunst. And that movie's supposed to be like, I know a lot of people who've returned to it and said it's way better than it got credit for at the time. But I'm going to have to go with my boy Damien. Well, your boy Damien has 67% of the vote, so it looks like he's got it locked down, although there's still chance. There's still a chance. Next, we've got Brad Bird versus Taika Waititi. Uh, Brad Bird, The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. Um, and then Taika, it's What We Do in the Shadows, which is a TV show, Hunt for the Wilder People, Thor Ragnarok, and Jojo Rabbit. Um... For me, this one is a little bit tough because I really enjoy a lot of these movies. Hunt for the Wilder People and Jojo Rabbit are both really good from Taika. But I think that Brad Bird gets it just by virtue of having more great movies. Like The Iron Giant is fantastic. The Incredibles is fantastic. So is Ratatouille. I don't love Ghost Protocol, but I see the appeal in it. Nathan, have you? I don't think you've seen Ghost Protocol. No. Well, yeah. What What do you think? I think I'm going to have to go Brad Bird for kind of the same reason. And it's also kind of cheating because Brad Bird was like one of the most important figures in the like animation in the 90s. Like he's 
I'm pretty sure he's credited as the animation consultant or something like that on almost every episode of The Simpsons in the 90s. And then he was pivotal or helpful to Pixar as they were kind of going to computer-generated graphics. So I think just, you know, he's done a lot of really amazing stuff outside of directing, yeah, Ratatouille, Incredibles, Iron Giant, uh, Dan can direct Tomorrowland too. Yep. Yeah, that movie's great. And Incredibles too. Yeah, well, that one's not terrible. But I'm going Brad Bird. I'm in the same camp as you. It's perfectly evenly split, fifty percent for both directors. So this one's yeah. a toss-up. Next, we got Alex Garland versus Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, I've seen two movies from... Alex Garland is known for Ex Machina, Annihilation, and Men. Those are his only three movies. He's not known for those. Those are the only films he's directed. Well, he also runs a show called, like, Reset or something. I don't know. It's got Nick Offerman in it. But anyway, Yorgos is known for Dogtooth, The Lobster, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and The Favorite. I've only seen The Lobster from Yorgos. It's a, it is a interesting movie. It's very difficult to parse out. Yeah, I don't know if I dislike it. I don't know if I like it. It's just very weird. I love Ex Machina. Annihilation is Annihilation. But I think I would have to go with Alex Garland based on my extremely limited experience of both directors. I would have to go with Alex Garland just because I like Ex Machina a great deal more than I like The Lobster. That's disgusting. I'm going my boy Yorgos. The Lobster is amazing. The Killing of a Sacred Deer is great. The Favorite is great. Dogtooth is weird. But Kaneda, his movie he made after Dogtooth, that one's really neat. He is so interesting. I love Yorgos. I'm pretty sure he was on my list of favorite directors. When we did that episode way back when, I'm so excited for his new movie that's coming this December. And Alex Garland is stupid. Okay. I don't like Annihilation. I'm never going to see men. Ex Machina is overhyped. The best thing Alex Garland did was he wrote Sunshine, which Danny Boyle directed. That's my opinion. Well, I'm sure you'll be thrilled to know that Alex Garland is currently enjoying a 16% lead in the poll. No! All right. Moving on. Next one. We've got... Shut up, Nathan. We've got Jordan Peele versus Greta Gerwig. Jordan Peele is known for Get Out, Us, and Nope, because those are, in fact, the only movies he's ever made. Greta Gerwig is known for Nights and Weekends, which I've never heard of before now. Lady Bird, Little Women, and the recently released Barbie. So our, well, I won't speak for you. My Jordan Peele skepticism is a matter of record at this point. I think Get Out is fantastic. Us is not very good. And the Nope is a tentative step back in the right direction. But Greta Gerwig, in that same episode you were talking about, she got an honorable mention on my favorite director's list. Lady Bird is fantastic. Little Women Little Women is really good despite a very strange ending. And of course, I I ha I have 
some affection for Barbie. So I, I would say pretty easily Greta Gerwig. I'm Gerwig for pretty much the same reasons you just said. So, yeah, I have nothing to add. Uh, this one is also a bit of a toss-up. Jordan Peele is currently leading with 51% of the vote to Greta Gerwig's 49%. So, still, still time. Close. Next up, we've got Phil Lord and Christopher Miller versus Sam Mendes. Lord and Miller are known for Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, 21 Jump Street, uh, and the Lego Movie. And Sam Mendes is known for American Beauty, Road to Perdition. I didn't realize he made that. Skyfall, and 1917. Uh, this is tricky, honestly, because I really like 21 Jump Street and 22 Jump Street and the Lego movie. Those are all fantastic. Um, but also, 1917 is great from Sam Mendes. I like Road to Perdition and Skyfall. Uh, I think I would have to go with Lord and Miller because I just like their movies more than... Sam Mendes is, I mean, 1917 is probably better than the best Lord and Miller movie, but Skyfall is good and Road to Perdition. I I enjoy both of those movies, but I don't think that they're quite up to the same caliber. And I think I just consistently enjoy Lord and Miller more than Sam Mendes. I'm going to go Sam Mendes. And honestly, I think I might like the Lego movie more than you because I would not say that 1917 is better than it. But I think in terms of a director who has like innovated and done new things, I think think it's too close to call. So I'm going to give the tie to the one who I think has done more outside of his comfort zone. And I think that's Sam Mendes. You know, 1917 is not like Skyfall, which is not like American Beauty, which is not like, you know, Jarhead, which is not like he has done a really good job of moving outside of his lane sometimes. And then Lord and Miller are great, but every Lord and Miller movie is like noticeably a Lord and Miller movie. It's high energy, it's got a lot of silly jokes, it's tongue-in-cheek, and they're all funny and good, but I think Sam Mendes is doing more interesting things. Well, the consensus is, the consensus is firmly on your side. Uh, 76% of voters have gone for Sam Mendes compared to 24% Lord and Miller, so that one's pretty well sewn up. Finally, we have the... Extremely unfair, Robert Eggers versus Christopher Nolan. Robert Eggers is known for The Vavitch, The Lighthouse, and The Northman. Christopher Nolan is known for Memento, The Dark Knight, Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Oppenheimer. Um, so, I think that Robert Eggers is... A, is <laughs> I think that Robert Eggers is a good director. I like The Lighthouse, I think, a lot more than you do. Um, yeah. And I also like The Northman. I'm excited for his remake of Nosferatu. But, I mean, Christopher Nolan. It's, it's, it's Christopher Nolan. Um, there's really nothing more that needs to be said. So I'm going to go with Nolan. Yeah, there's nothing more that needs to be said. I agree with you. <laughs> yes, and Nolan is absolutely running away with it with a 
commendable lead of 92% over Robert Eggers' 8%. Sorry, Robert. They they did you dirty uh, with that yeah, pairing. That's a tough part. He, he was put in a tough part of the bracket. All right. Well, that's it. Um, I think that this is getting updated weekly, so we'll be able to move on to round four next week. I think that we were, for the most part, in the ones where we were in agreement, I think we were mostly on the side of the voters. So, uh, Which means that next week it'll get significantly harder because we'll have to be choosing between directors that we enjoy. But yeah, I just thought that that would be a fun little thing to play along with and maybe contribute to the ongoing discourse um, in our own special way. (laughs) But that took a long time, so let's move into the next thing that'll take a long time, and that's today's episode, which is about a movie called Ace in the Hole. Nathan, this is your choice, so why don't you tell us what's up with Ace in the Hole? What's the deal? What's the deal with Ace in the Hole? Um... Yeah, I got to pick the movie. I wanted to pick a Billy Wilder film. Uh, going back to the episode of our favorite directors for the fir- third time this episode, uh, Billy Wilder is probably my t- in my top three favorite directors of all time. He sh- The three kind of shift around, but he I think he's amazing for reasons we'll get into as we talk about this movie. But I really wanted to do one of his. Elliot's seen a couple of Billy Wilder movies, so I wanted to do one that he hadn't seen, just so I could get his thoughts on it and, you know, figure out if he was cool like me or lame like the haters. And I've seen this movie twice um, before watching it for this episode and really enjoyed it both times. It's one of it's probably maybe my third favorite Billy Wilder movie. I think I'd have to rewatch double indemnity, but in case you didn't know, it's a 1951 Kirk Douglas movie. Kirk Douglas plays the main character. It follows Charles Tatum, a down on his luck newsman who ends up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, working on some podunk newspaper in this tiny town. And when he discovers a man trapped under a mountain, trapped in a cave, basically, he thinks he's found the story he can ride all the way back to the top. So this is classic Billy Wilder. It's quick. It's witty. It's well done. Everyone is so sarcastic and mean. It's very cynical. It's noir-esque. We can talk about if it's noir or if it's you know, noir adjacent. There's some stuff to be discussed there, but yeah, I don't know how much else I can say in terms of my initial thoughts. I really enjoy this movie. I love Billy Wilder. I'm excited to talk about it. Elliot, what were your initial, this is your first time watching it. What what were your thoughts? So, yeah, I, I'm not on the Billy Wilder hype train the way you are. I, I like the apartment a lot. I did not particularly care for Sunset Boulevard for a whole host of reasons. And then then we come to this movie, and I feel like it kind of... I would say that it's like, it's sitting right in the middle. Um, I thought that this was a good movie. It was a movie that I enjoyed. I liked it a fairly significant, 
I was fairly significantly more on board with it in the beginning than I was towards the end. I felt like the movie's message got a bit ham-fisted by the end, and also it just generally didn't find ways or didn't find enough ways to keep its premise fresh and dynamic as the movie went along. I feel like it kind of settled into a holding pattern towards the middle that I got a little, I I didn't get bored with it and I didn't get frustrated with it, but I just got a little less enamored with it as it went on. So I feel like if it was a little bit shorter, we would have something truly special on our hands, but there's a lot to appreciate about this movie. Kirk Douglas is a great actor. I actually, so I watched this on Monday, and I wanted to record sooner than this so I could remember what I was talking about. Um, Nathan refused to work with me. He was very rude, very uncompromising. Thankfully, <clears throat> for the first time ever, I actually did write down a few notes on this movie. And yeah, mostly they're about uh, Billy Ry- Bill- Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder as a writer. Uh, I think that he does write really good scripts. They're very snappy. They remind me a lot of MASH, the TV show, if you've ever watched that, in that everyone, it's it's very much like based on call and response. Like everyone has, it feels like everyone has part of a moment and then somebody that they will say and then somebody else will complete it. Like somebody will say, like at the very beginning, Kirk Douglas says says to this young reporter, like Cagey, huh? Because the reporter isn't is kind of giving him the runaround. And then as the conversation goes on, eventually he asks the young reporter asks Kirk Douglas, Chuck Tatum, a question that he doesn't respond to, and the young reporter's like, Cagey, huh? And there's a lot of that in Billy Wilder's stuff. It's it's very much yeah, call and response. It's it's dialogue that's built in two parts, with each part being delivered by a single person, which is a it's a cool way to write and it keeps it engaging. Um, so yeah, that's that's initial thoughts and a, a bit about Billy Wilder's writing style. But yeah, to summarize, I I think that I I still have yet to find the Billy Wilder movie that's 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 right for me. Well, that's that's unfortunate for you because Billy Wilder is amazing. And I'm glad you brought up his writing because I think that's what I would want to start this episode with. Because when I saw you on Tuesday, you had seen the movie and you seemed to kind of imply that you were less than enamored with it. So then I was thinking about this movie and I was like, well, maybe I am just being too nice to the movie and maybe it is just kind of a generic like fast talking cynical newsman sort of movie and then i started watching it wednesday night and i was like wait i forgot this it's this and this is important billy wilder is one of the best directors to ever live and writes like a madman i just i love the opening to this movie so much chuck 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 tatum is in his car getting pulled by a... He's getting towed, basically. And it's such a phenomenal opening because it instantly it grabs your attention. You're like, oh, so, you know, we already understand some things about this guy. He's down on his luck. He's a bit of a character because when he gets out of the 
car, he tells the guy like, hey, hold it here for a bit. You know, it, it raises some of these questions like, why on earth is the tow guy listening to Chuck Tatum? Is he in his employ or something? Whatever. But I love it. And then he goes in and I love the thing that you talked about where the Tatum says to Hobby, you know, Kagia, and then later Hobby says it back to him. I love the conversation he has with the editor-in-chief of the newspaper where he's, my favorite line in it is probably when he goes, I've lied to men wearing belts and I've lied to men wearing suspenders, but I'd never be so stupid as to lie to a man wearing belt and suspenders. And the guy just, I love how the editor-in-chief just ignores all of these little like barbs that Tatum is kind of sending at him that he's like, oh, you know, your newspaper's small. I'm such a big deal, all this stuff. And the guy is very unbothered by any of these little things, which I just love. It makes such a great dynamic. And I, I just love the way Billy Wilder writes that it's so snappy. It's so fun to listen to. And Kirk Douglas is a perfect vehicle for it in this movie he has so much charisma he does such an amazing job i love when he does um oh shoot i'm trying to remember what the i think the the guy thinks he's been drinking and tatum goes well i can't drink because it gives me a facial tick and kirk douglas does like a facial tick thing that i can't do because i can't act at all or do anything with my face besides laugh but it's such a neat i just uh, I just, I love the writing. I love Kirk Douglas. And I think those are the two things that, in my opinion, elevate this movie from what could be kind of a story that you've maybe seen before. You kind of can figure out what the gist of it is very early on. But I think the writing in Kirk Douglas keeps you, or at least kept me, engaged and excited for the movie throughout its runtime. I mean, yeah, I, I agree to a certain extent. Uh, he's definitely a good writer. He's definitely a good writer of dialogue. I'm not so sure if he's as good a writer in certain other areas, because I think that he write he paints characters in pretty broad strokes. Like, there are not very many, if any, complicated characters in the movies of his that I've seen. His stories are fairly simple, they follow a fairly, I mean, I typically don't try to figure out where a movie is going just because I don't see the point, but I pretty much had this movie clocked by the time the media circus started coalescing around the mountain. So I feel like his stories are also fairly simple. And there's a... There's a quote from him where he explains that that is like a deliberate choice, that he thinks he's very contemptuous of the audience. He thinks that they're very stupid and he's he's trying to keep them entertained uh, and engaged. Nathan seems to think that that's an unfair interpretation of that quote. So he'll probably say something once I'm done. But for now, I think that that can come across at times and it can feel... And also, he also writes everyone very similarly. Like, everyone does have that same snappy, quippy, fast-paced way of talking. And it can make it hard to 
make it feel it can make it hard for any character to feel really distinct or really interesting because they all uh, they are all painted in fairly broad strokes and they all express themselves in very similar ways and that, those are the kinds of things that keep me from loving Billy Wilder the way that you do and that that holds true here like Kirk Douglas Chuck Tatum is a very simple character. I mean, he is constantly stating his objective and his motivations for the camera that he's a sleazy grifter who just wants to make money and make a name for himself and have fame and fortune and stuff. And then he does a heel turn that is the mechanics of which I'm not entirely convinced about, which we can get into later. Um, but yeah, the the small town, the editor of his original paper before he leaves, um, the smaller one, he's he's a very simple like member of the old guard uh, of newspapers, where he's like, we got to be truthful and objective, and we don't want to be too flashy or anything like that. And the the sheriff is the typical sleazy, corrupt politician who doesn't really care about the issues that he's talking up just for the camera. And all of that contributes to making a movie that felt a little bit a little bit not unsubstantive. Like, I don't want to say that it's it would be harsh and inaccurate to describe it as like McDonald's levels of unsubstantial, but I do think that it is not a very filling or nutritious cinematic meal, or at least I didn't feel like it. I didn't, I didn't experience it that way. This is it. And see, I want to, you know, I I don't want to spend the entire time talking about the mechanics of why I find Billy Wilder compelling as a director, but I think for, because it's pertinent to this movie, the quote that you were referring to is a quote that he has where he says, one person is an idiot. Two people is two idiots. A group of people in the movie theater is your audience. And I don't think he was saying it in like a disparaging or like, you know, it kind of is that he's like, they're dumb. But the way I see him living out that quote in his movies is him understanding that he needs to make this movie for everyone. And if people are getting lost or are not grasping the message and the idea he's trying to communicate, then he has failed. That, And I really appreciate that because I think sometimes directors can get really pretentious and uppity that they're like, oh, if the audience doesn't get it, that's their fault. And I think there's sometimes where that might be a little true. But I think for the most part, if like if you're trying to communicate an idea to me, it's not my fault if you suck at communicating the idea. So I find Billy Wilder's movies really interesting because I think he does such an amazing job. And this is the same reason why I think Damien Chazelle is really great and why I think Christopher Nolan is really great. And Akira Kurosawa, like all my favorite directors, is because I think they take really heady, difficult to grasp concepts and ideas and put them in broad enough strokes that they're palatable and understandable to a general audience. But, and this is maybe where we disagree, I think they also do it in a way that 
like they're not losing some of the nuances of that thing. And I think this is, is where we disagree with this movie that you're talking about how he's painting with broad strokes. He has a lot of kind of archetypal characters and I think these are good things because I don't see any part in the movie where he's losing the message or losing nuances of his intention of, right, the news blows things out of proportion and the, right, all of these different things that can go into a story being warped and misused in a really awful, horrendous way. Like it, like the story at the heart of this movie is, you know, warped i i don't see any place in the movie where he loses the new like some of the nuance and the real world like reality of this story and i think that's probably where we disagree because it sounds like you do find it somewhat like that but i guess you know we just disagree there but that that that's why i see kind of as is really amazing about Billy Wilder that he makes movies that are very, I think intellectually driven, but he does it in a way that I think anyone who watches Ace in the Hole will be able to come away with some discussion or some real world applications and examples of, Oh yeah, like this is places where people have done this or where I see this, or this is how, you know, I should interpret the news given information of right people fudging the news somewhat, spreading misinformation. So that's what I think is really good and interesting about this movie. Yeah, I guess I would say that I don't think, I don't think it's that he loses nuance as it goes along. I think that he never really has any nuance to begin with. Like, it's just, it's just it's it's everything that it says on the tin. It's a it's an exploitative a group of exploitative cynical people cynically exploiting something for their own gain until one of them mm-hmm. grows a conscience and tries to back out of it and fails. And there's not really anything more to it. Like it's it's a very message driven movie that it's about sensationalism in the news, which at the time of writing, which I think was in the 50s or something, uh, was becoming increasing, as news media was increasing in prominence, um, this is a bit of a history lesson, as news media was increasing in prominence, so too, of course, were anxieties about that. That if this industry is essentially creating truth, or it's purporting to relay truth, there were, of course, worries that it was creating truth or that the truths that it was relaying were not actually very relevant to the modern man and that they appealed to very basic, unhelpful or not very useful instincts in their readership uh, or listenership, as the case may be. And that's all well and good. It's just that this is almost two hours of that and nothing but. And I think that more interesting characters, and this is something that I've said several times on the podcast, that themes need to grow in fertile soil, or at least for me. This this is a very personal thing. For me, I find it harder to get with a movie's message if it's not relayed 
in the context of something engaging and interesting. And I think that more engaging, nuanced characters, A, could have led to a more engaging, nuanced take on this subject, because this is a very simplistic take on sensationalism in the news, which you could say, and there's certainly an argument to be made, that it is just a simple issue. People talk things up that don't really matter and create a circus, and that's all there is to it. Maybe. There's certainly an argument to be made there. I don't personally think that that's the case, but I certainly think that the people who create those things are, by by the very virtue of being people, are complex and nuanced things. And I don't really get that from this movie, from this movie. And this is kind of a way to transition into talking about the characters more specifically. I feel like Chuck Tatum, his heel turn is very sudden. And in a certain, to a certain extent, that makes sense. That suddenly a man's life is on the line where before it was pretty, it was taken for granted that he was going to be fine. So, I mean, that's a pretty significant new wrench in the works that could very well, that could feasibly prompt such a sudden heel turn. But I feel like it would have been better from the point of character writing if he had been shown to be batting away doubts beforehand and that this was more of a established and built up thing than it was in the movie where he realizes that Leo's going to die. And then he, it seems like he realizes, oh, actually I like this guy and I don't want him to die. And his parents are fine people where before that he never really, that was never really evinced in his character or in his interactions. Like he was always the cynical, sleazy, exploitative newsman until he wasn't. And whether that's realistic or not, I think is up for debate in the context of a movie, I think that it poorly served the character. Hmm. Well, and so this is interesting, and I mentioned it in my beginning sort of intro. So Billy Wilder kind of got big off of Double Indemnity, which is a noir film and is kind of one of the classic, like, perfect noir films it's got every the femme fatale all this stuff and i think one of the more interesting ways to look at this movie is as a noir film and i think one of the things that really struck me as i was watching it and i wrote it down here in my note here in my notebook that in noir movies typically there's two kinds of people there's the suckers who are going to get suckered by something who, you know, these are, these are the people who come into the detective's office and they're weepy and they don't understand how the world works. And in the context of Ace in the Hole, that's like, right, the editor-in-chief, hobby, that's all of the people who come to the literal circus that gets placed outside of the mountain These are the people who, they don't understand how the world works. They're naive, they're silly, they're stupid, they're suckers. And then the other part is the cynics, right? These are the people, they know what's up. They understand how the world works. These are the sheriff. These are, even to some extent, right, the construction worker, Stan, the wife of Leo, who, 
right, is very disillusioned with the life she's led up to this point. And she seems as though, doesn't seem as though, she definitely wants to leave. She wants to get out of where she is. And then Chuck Tatum, right? These are people, they know how the world works. But in the best noirs, or at least in a lot of noirs, the main character typically has this moment where they realize they don't really like they don't really want to be in the group that they've been put in. If you think of like Blade Runner, which is a noir, Deckard kind of experiences this character arc. Uh, I think that he realizes he doesn't he doesn't want to be treating the replicants the way all of the you know people the groups he's a part of have been treating the replicants. Double indemnity is kind of a similar thing that the main character realizes, oh man, I'm kind of, I'm doing some sketchy stuff. And then Ace in the Hole, right? Obviously, we've already talked about it. Tatum experiences a change of heart near the end and decides he wants to flip. And I think it's really interesting. And, you know, you could say it's maybe a bit poorly set up, but I think it's set up in the fact that, right, we're human beings and, like you already said, I don't think Tatum had realized that Leo might die until the doctor told him, hey, Leo might die. And then suddenly it becomes all of these things that were right, murky gray morality for Tatum becomes black and white morality, which is very obvious in the way he acts for the last like 30 minutes of the movie, right? That he's very determined. He knows exactly what he wants to do. He's not beating around the bush. He does everything as quickly and as matter-of-factly as he can. He goes to get a priest. He goes, you know, he does all these things because he knows exactly what he wants to do. And I don't know. I think it's believable. And I think it's also very, I don't know about compelling, but I think it's a very interesting look at humans, right? That I personally can be a very cynical person, but I've also experienced this same thing of I'm cynical, 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 And then suddenly I come up against something and I'm like, okay, I really like, I don't really want to be cynical about this. Like I just kind of want to enjoy the thing or be more genuine. And so I think Tatum's heel turn makes sense to me. And I think it makes for a classic old Hollywood sort of ending. I mean, the final shot of him, collapsing to his death after failing to do anything meaningful to make up for the sins he had accumulated throughout the course of the movie. I mean, that's classic Hollywood and it's, it's so good. I love it. I'm such a huge fan, but I, and I guess to kind of throw the question over to you, do you see this as much of a noir film or was this anything that you kind of picked up on or had thoughts of as you watched the movie or was that not any anywhere in your mind? Uh, no, I did not really get that. I guess it's possible you've just seen more noirs than me. I mean, that sounded like a, a, a college level essay that someone would write about the mechanics of noirs. Um, I typically find noirs to be, I think that this is, this movie is, a little too breezy to be a noir and I don't think it's really I don't think it's I think that noir cynicism is usually less about like 
stupidity or the naivete of people and more about the apathy of people that people didn't treat the replicants in Blade Runner the way they treated them because they were just suckers or they didn't understand what was going on. They treated them because they just didn't care. They were just sort of out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Uh, so I, I, I didn't really get that. I also, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I guess I just don't really care. <laughs> I mean, I, maybe my cynicism is just harder to penetrate, but I, I mean, obviously it's no fun being cynical because it means that you're always a bit depressed or more than a bit depressed. But I, I don't know. I, it, it just, I just, the character wasn't enough or hadn't been enough before then to really make me care about this heel turn. Like it, mm-hmm. it's just all down to how much you bought into him already. The, the, that informs the level of your, what, engagement with his eventual revivification or attempt at revivification. So I, 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 I guess I just, that just does, that just doesn't really do much for me. Um, because I'm, maybe I'm just a lost cause in terms of cynicism. But, uh, I want to talk a bit about the other characters in the movie because none of them in my mind are a whole lot better. I particularly want to single out Hobby, I think was his name, the younger kid reporter, because, he really, it really felt like they wanted to do something with him and then just didn't. I mean, he really disappeared from the movie until the like very end after he decides to follow Chuck into the sensationalist circle of media, he kind of falls out of the story. And I thought that they were going to have him like, he was going to be a part of Tatum's, eventual heel turn that he was going to see what he had done to hobby. He would be like, he would go and report to hobby like, Oh, Leo's dying. And hobby would be like, who cares? It's going to, it's going to sell more papers, man. And then he would take a drag on his cigar and adjust his sunglasses. And Tatum would be like, no, what have I done? But that didn't happen. And (laughs) thank goodness. (laughs) Okay. Obviously, it, it should have been done in a more artful version than that. But yeah, it's fine when movies don't <laughs> do what I think they should do. But I do think they should have done something with his character because he doesn't really have one. I mean, he makes the switch, but that's there's no indication of whether or not that's like maybe something that should be shocking or the level of the corruption that it took for him to make this switch because we don't know if he was once very much on the editor's side, and now he's. it took a lot for him to see all the money and the attention and be like, that's what I want, instead of the more honest, down-to-earth reporting. Because he just vanishes. And when he comes back, there's no indication that he's changed at all. Like, he doesn't say, oh, no, it's it's terrible that... He doesn't really react to Leo dying at all, which feels like that would be pretty central for his character development if he had any. So I just I just found that frustrating. 
Yeah, I guess I can see that. I also, it seems to me like you're kind of reading a lot into Hobby's character that, I guess I've never been annoyed that he disappeared for a while. And I think it's because I don't think he's that big of a deal. So it's kind of like the editor in chief disappearing. I'm like, okay, I guess I don't see, I, I never got the sense when I've watched it that they were trying to do anything that deep with Hobby, that he was just another person that much like the sheriff and the wife, he just kind of appears as a foil or as another kind of example of people's cynicism and inner darkness, but he doesn't, the movie's really about Tatum. So there's not, I don't really see the need to have really deep side character sort of things. So I don't know. I enjoy all the other side characters. I like the conversations Hobby has with um, Tatum. I like the conversations. I do really like the conversation that the wife has when she comes in after like, she's just starting to make like a lot of money off of this whole media circus. And she comes in and she's kind of like flirting with Tatum and then Tatum hits her. Cause he's like, you're not supposed to be smart. Like you have to play a part in this story I'm constructing. And I like that scene just because later in the movie, it's obvious that she has even more fallen into like, I'm going to follow the story until the story is done. And so when Tatum comes back, there is kind of one of those moments like you're describing with Hobby, where he realizes that he has pushed her further than he maybe intended, that he comes back and he's like, you've got to put on the weasel or whatever it, whatever ridiculous animal the scarf was made out of. And she doesn't want to do it. And it's because she's like, this story is clearly ending, so the story doesn't matter, but Tatum's not trying to do it for the story anymore. He's trying to do it for Leo. And so I, I just like that. And I like that, you know, there is no, not that there's much chance of one, but there's no like lame half-baked romance between the wife and Tatum. There's no, like all of the character, they know exactly what function they're supposed to be in the story and they fill in the function. I love the sheriff. The sheriff and his stupid, rattlesnake in a box is so is goofy i love it it feels like a coen brothers bit almost that it's just kind of a needless quirk that the character walks around <laughs> with the rattlesnake that he's trying to you know figure out what to feed it it's goofy i could probably sit here and come up with some deep message what it means that the sheriff was carrying around a rattlesnake the rattlesnake represents people he's trying to find out what he needs to tell people but i you know, I think that would be making up stuff. So I'm not going to do that. All right. That was weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess I just... Uh, the side characters were all... And this is part of what you were talking about, that there's two categories of people in this movie. And they were all so firmly in their categories that I just found them a bit boring. That they were all like... They were all, they all talked and felt the same. So the, the wife talked and was very similar to the sheriff. Um, and Hobby was very shim similar to the construction worker in that he was a bit conflicted, but he was just going along with it. And the dad was more similar to the simple, earthy, 
um, editor in chief. And it just, yeah, I, I just thought that, that there was, they were, they were just a, a bit boring and I didn't really, I didn't really care about them. And I wanted them to be more interesting and to be more dynamic and engaging, but they weren't. So it wasn't. That's such a terror, you know, I, th- I don't know what your deal is, Elliot. <laughs> I don't have a deal, Nathan. Um, so let's talk about something else that's uh, a bit unfortunate about this movie. And then, and then I do want to talk about some more things that I liked about it. Because uh, I want to talk about the mechanics of this whole plot. Because I don't think that every movie, I don't think that a movie's every plot point needs to be 100% logical and rational. Because guess what? The world is not 100% logical and rational. And people are not 100% logical and rational. So when I see people online critiquing films like this guy says uses a contraction when he should just split the word the word into the two words that can the contraction is made of therefore this movie sucks I think that's ridiculous but I do think that there is something to be said for a movie's more broader narrative making sense especially when those plot points are integral to the movie. And so what I'm talking about is why are they trying to drill from the bottom, from the top down? Because to my mind, when they break through the ceiling of the cave, Leo is going to be crushed by all the falling rocks. So how is that going to work? And am I, do I just not know about how drilling works? Are they going to, like, cover him with a blanket or something and hope that nothing heavy falls on him? Like, it feels like that's just going to cause a cave in. (laughs) That's, I I don't understand that. And I'm willing to accept that maybe there's an explanation, but the movie doesn't give one. So I'm more leaning towards just something kind of stupid that Billy Wilder didn't really think of. And the other thing is, Chuck gets stabbed in the stomach with a pair of scissors. Like, he sort of attacks the wife when he's having these moments of conscience. He attacks the wife because he's mad at her, and she, I guess he, like, sees himself reflected in her or something. Or maybe that's giving the movie too much credit, I don't know. But he attacks her, and she stabs him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. And I was really confused about this, because the movie was really playing fast and loose with whether or not this was something bad because he was operating pretty much 100 at 100% after that. And after that comprises like hours and hours of real world time. And the only indication that there was a problem was he would occasionally like wince and press his stomach and then when they drive back to Albuquerque, suddenly he's got this big smear of blood down his front, and then he dies. And I'm pretty sure if that was a fatal wound, or if he was bleeding out, he should have been out of commission well before that. Like, I don't think that kind of wound is something that just suddenly catches up with you, and then you're dead. And, I mean, it's not a big deal, but it's just something silly that I think... There could have been they, they could have 
if they really wanted Chuck to die at the end, I feel like there was probably a way they could have done that without opening this can of worms. Yeah, I don't know. Neither of those things bother me. I just, and I think we've covered this before, that I am much more willing to accept, uh, I guess, the reality or the vermicillitude of uh, what is being depicted in movies than you are. Because, I mean, with the drill thing, I was just like, okay, I'm assuming there's some way you can safely drill. I don't know, maybe the dirt gets moved up. I'm not a... I'm not a drill man. I'm not a driller dude. So I don't know. And then I knew, I actually knew you were going to complain about um, Chuck bleeding out for the entire climax of the movie. And yeah, I don't know. It's a little silly, but I, I also don't know the mechan- the exact mechanics of how a person experiences blood loss to the extent that they would die. So, I don't know. Maybe they could do that. People do more impressive things. Someone went to the moon. That's impressive. Surely that someone could, you know, go around and do stuff for an hour or two after being stabbed with scissors. I'm pretty sure there's a logical fallacy somewhere in there. Oh, for sure. See if you could catch it. Rewind the episode. See if you could find the fallacy. (laughs) Okay. I don't have a lot else to say. It sounded like you wanted to start talking about positive things, so I'd love to hear that. Uh, yeah, I, I want to talk about performances. I think that everyone was doing a great job, Kirk Douglas especially. Um, that I'm going to sneak in a little a little bit more criticism here, which I'm sure you'll be thrilled about, but oh, good, no, everyone was working pretty well with fairly rudimentary materials that they were provided with. Um, so the wife... Leo, uh, the doctor, the sheriff, the construction guy. I, li- I actually like the construction guy more than most of the other side characters in this. But yeah, performances were really good. Um, something that I noticed about Billy Wilder's writing that I can compliment him on is creative use of verbs. And this is something that writers usually get very jealous about. I once read an article by Stephen King or maybe it wasn't Stephen King. It was some writer who was talking about how Chekhov used such creative verbs that you don't want to just say, like, you don't want to use a simple verb. You want to come up with something creative to communicate action. Um, So, like, uh, I'm reading this Cormac McCarthy book here, and there's a, a part where a tube that is stretching off into the distance is described as tunneling off into the distance. And that's a that's good. That's an example of a really cool, creative, unexpected verb choice. And Billy Wilder does the same thing. I've got it written here in my notes. I'm thinking specifically of when Chuck notices the sign that says, tell the truth in the Albuquerque newspaper office. And he says, wish I could coin them like that. I think that that's a good uh, creative verb choice. Um, so that's good. I like that. I also thought that this movie had a lot of surprisingly modern feeling camera tricks. Like there's like the low angle shot of somebody walking towards the camera until their being sort of blacks out the shot. And then the next shot is from behind and it's them 
walking away. So it, it gives the illusion that they've like walked right through the camera and the camera just swiveled to follow their progress. I feel like I don't see that very much in older movies. That feels like a more modern film technique. And also the big panning wide angle shots of the media circus. Um, I always like those kinds of shots that require a lot of extras and probably people are on microphones saying like, oh, do this, do that, do the other thing. Uh, just because they're they're complicated and they they look cool, so I feel like I I thought the cinematography was very good in this movie and very forward thinking. Um, if you could, there's a there's a creative wor- verb choice for you. Actually, that's not a verb. That's an adjective. Uh, so yeah, those were two things that I wanted to give unqualified praise to. Wow. I don't think I even noticed that about the cinematography, but I'm inclined to agree. I love cinematography. I'm sure that's true. I love the last shot, the low angle shot of him. And then he falls right in front of the camera. I think that's a really neat shot. And I also love the big panning shots of all the people. It also had one of my favorite kind of reoccurring gags in the movie where it keeps showing the sign to go into the like park and every time they show it through the movie, she has increased the admission price that at first it's free and then it's 25 cents. And then I think by the end of the movie, it's a dollar to get in or something. And then also we were, it was funny, you were humming it, but the song that some guy like makes up about Leo, like we're going to get you out, Leo, whatever the song is, you were humming it yesterday. <laughs> I just thought that was funny that you were doing that. Yep, hilarious. Well, I don't have any other closing thoughts. I feel like I've said my piece on this uh, this here picture film. So, are you ready to get into ratings, Elliot? Yep, let's get into it. All right, I'll go first. This should come as no surprise. I really love this movie. I It's so good. It exemplifies all of the stuff that I like about Billy Wilder. It is well-written, well-acted, well-shot, well-done. It is immaculately constructed, and it is such an amazing, nice little encapsulation of, you know, an idea, a theme for a general audience. I'm such a big fan. I also think this movie has aged very very well and i imagine will continue to age very well like elliot said this was kind of the advent of widespread news media sensationalism and i don't think our media has gotten that much less sensational in the last you know 70 some years since this movie came out so i have a few issues i never got to talk about negatives but i kind of agree that the the ending's a little drawn out and it does not maintain the exact same amount of energy as it has at the beginning near the end. But this is such a small thing. I love watching these movies. I just, his dialogue sings. I love listening to it. I'm going to give this an 8.8 out of 10. I'm a big fan. Yeah. Um, just want to reiterate that I think there's a lot to like about this film, even though I spent most of my time talking about the things I didn't like. That's just because that's the stuff that I, felt I could more ably articulate and because Nathan handled the positives more. Um, I think that the dialogue is pretty good. It's got good verb use. Um, 
good cinematography, good performances. It's a decent story, but there are just niggling problems of character and simplicity of story and of characters that I feel weighed this movie down. And in the end, I came around to a B minus. So, yeah. I'm just going to keep making you watch Billy Wilder movies until... I'm surprised you didn't like Sunset Bull. A lot of the things that you were but like bothered about in this movie, like I see Sunset Boulevard as his least, like his most complex movie, his least kind of broad strokey. I mean, that's his most, in my opinion, at least his most like outside the box, outside what his other ones kind of are. So I'm surprised that you didn't like that one, but whatever, we don't have to get into it. Uh, instead, let's get into some discussion of different movies. We've both got a recommendation here. My recommendation is going to be for another classic. I don't know if it's a classic, but another old Hollywood sort of film called The Sweet Smell of Success. It follows, I can't remember the main character's name, but it's a similarly quick-talking cynical man in New York. He's, I think, the assistant to some really rich dude, and he's kind of a fixer for him. So he, he goes out and does stuff and blackmails people. And I think it's very good. It's a similar sort of character study as Tatum is in this movie. But I think this one is, and the reason why I enjoy this movie the sweet smell of success so much is because I think there's, I haven't seen a better encapsulation of Socrates's idea that doing evil habitually kind of removes your ability to do good because you stop thinking of, you stop realizing that like you can do good near the tail end of this movie. The main character is given a choice like a very obvious, like if you keep going down this path, you are going to die or like something bad is going to happen or you can do the right thing and you can be okay. And he doesn't take it because he just can't even conceive of doing the right thing anymore. He's done so many bad things and he's been in this life of we're going to be scumbags forever So he has ceased to even consider the possibility that he could do otherwise. And so I think it's amazing. It's got the classic old Hollywood Casablanca style, just, you know, zinger after zinger sort of dialogue. It's a lot of fun. I'm a big fan of it. You should check it out. Yeah, I have not seen that, so I cannot comment. I've never even heard of that until you told me that's what you were going to recommend. My recommendation is another movie about a grifter trying to who is ends up being hoisted by his own petard who ends up being dealt divine sort of justice um after a life of sin uh, and that's Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley so this is a movie about a carnival a carnival mind reader um or a guy who claims to be uh, tele or psychokinetic. I don't know. He claims to have special powers. He's, he's like a medium or something. 
Um, and it's about him trying to play a con on this really rich guy. Uh, it's got Bradley Cooper in it. He plays the main character. It's got a pretty star-studded cast. There's Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, Willem Dafoe, lots of great actors. Um, I don't typically love Guillermo del Toro's movies. Well, maybe that's not true. I, I mean, I like Pacific Rim and Pan's Labyrinth. I guess I don't love those movies. Uh, I thought this was probably his my favorite of, of his. It's much darker than uh, Ace in the Hole, but it's a, it's about a similar sort of char- character, like I already said, and the consequences of living this kind of life. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's very slickly shot. It's got some cool like dark things it's hard to describe and i don't want to spoil it but i think you should watch it if you're looking for another movie about a con man meeting justice but also one that's got a bit more of an edge to it um that deals in uh or exists in a bit of a darker place um so yeah that's my recommendation and before nathan before you comment on that i just want to say that life is hard and full of disappointments Uh, that's a great pick. I like. I think I like Del Toro a bit more than you, probably. But that's a good pick. I like that movie. It's fun. It's slick. It's everything a Del Toro movie should be. Yeah. This episode ran a bit long. I'm going to blame the Rotten Tomatoes thingy that we did at the beginning. But it was fun, so I don't care. But hopefully you enjoyed this. Uh, all of you Billy Wilder fans who are out there, hopefully everyone listens to this and here's how cool I am and then starts hanging out and then we can all watch Billy Wilder movies together like, you know, friends or something. That would be really fun. Right, Elliot? I mean, you can do that if you want. Whatever. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode. It's going to be super fun, super exciting. We hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.